Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to go through, start with verse 19 and go through verse 31. Our context is this. In the first part of chapter 9, Paul got converted on the road to Damascus with that famous story. And we've just had him being prayed for by Ananias, who came to pray for him that he might receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul had not eaten for three days. And it starts, we start out in Acts 9, 19. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. So after he ate, got his strength back, he was with the disciples in Damascus for three days. Now, why was Paul weak? Why did he need to regain his strength? Well, remember, he had come on a 150-mile journey from Jerusalem. He had the shock of his appearance to Jesus, who came to him, knocked him off his donkey. He's lying on on his face, and he has this incredible conversion experience, and he doesn't eat or drink for three days after that. And Adam, that's John Gill, mentions all that. Adam Clark adds, Paul was also weighed down with a conviction of sin. He was probably feeling pretty bad about killing and arresting Christians. So that's why he was tired. So he regained his strength, and then for several days, some days, he was with his disciples in Damascus. Now, after that, he went into Arabia. Galatians 1.17 says, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. We've got to coordinate several verses that are scattered through the New Testament to try to figure out what Paul did for three years after he got converted in Damascus. But at some point in time, he went down to Arabia. Now, where's Arabia? Arabia is the desert area between the Jordan River and going east toward the Euphrates River. Which, in, which is present-day Jordan and right east of Jerusalem. And if you go north a little bit, you're talking about present-day Syria. Then when you go east over the Euphrates River, you get to present-day Iraq, the Mesopotamian Valley. So, But Arabia went from the Jordan River to the Euphrates River, and it went all the way down from Damascus at the northern end of the Arabian Desert, all the way down into the, uh, you keep going south, 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 all the way down in the, into Saudi Arabia. And back then, the ancients divided Arabia up into three parts. Arabia Petria was one of them. That's where Petra is, right where present-day Jordan is. And there's Arabia Felix, which I think was over toward the Persian Gulf. And I forgot where the other Arabia is. But the point is, it's it's confusing. When you see this, you think, well, how did Paul go down to Arabia? Did he go down to Saudi Arabia? No. Arabia was right outside of Damascus. So he just went outside of Damascus and went into the desert there. As the NIV Study Bible says, Arabia extended to just around Damascus. Now, Paul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days, and John Gill says those disciples must have taught Paul the basics of Christian doctrine because shortly thereafter, Paul was preaching in the synagogues. It didn't take him long to get going, filled with the Holy Spirit as he was after being prayed for by Ananias. This shows that one does not have to be a theologian to preach the gospel. Even young Christians can preach the gospel. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, interestingly enough, disagrees with Gill that Paul was taught the basics of Christian doctrine by his fellow disciples in Damascus because Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says this, quote, making their acquaintance in another way than either he or they had anticipated and regaining his tone by the fellowship of the saints but not certainly in order to learn from them what he was to teach, which he expressly disavows in Galatians 1.12 and Galatians 1.16. So Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says, yeah, the disciples helped him, encouraged him, but they didn't teach him anything because of these verses that I'm going to read to you, Galatians 1.12, Paul saying this, For I did not receive it, the gospel, from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation from Jesus Christ. In Galatians 1.16, I am pleased to, God is, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Well, so Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and John Gill got a difference of opinion on that. Was Paul taught or was he not taught? Well, here's how you can reconcile it. This is my opinion. We could say that Paul was not saved from a human source. When he says in Galatians 1.12, I did not receive it from a human source, it means I didn't receive this gospel salvation from a human source. In other words, I saw a vision of Jesus, supernaturally, a revelation from Jesus Christ. But Galatians 1.12, when Paul says, I did not receive it from a human source, but it came by revelation from Jesus Christ, is not referring to teaching subsequent to that vision, which Paul received from the Damascus Christians. Now in Galatians 1.16, when Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, 
perhaps Paul is referring to the three days fasting before he saw Ananias. And then, of course, he had that vision, and then Ananias fulfilled the vision and came and talked to him. So that was an immediate revelation. It was, he was not being taught. But after that, I assume he was taught by the disciples in, in Damascus. So I think Gill's got the better argument there. I think Jameson Foster Brown's been a little too tight there. I believe that Paul was taught. There's nobody, I don't care how many revelations he has, there's nobody that can't be taught by his fellow Christians, even baby Christians. It's amazing what you learn from other Christians. Acts 9.20, immediately he, Paul, began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. These are the synagogues in Damascus. He is the Son of God. Now, this became Paul's regular practice is to start preaching in the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, at every opportunity, as the NIV Study Bible points out. I'm going to read you quickly six verses in Acts to show Paul's pattern. Acts 13.5, arriving in Salamis, that's on the eastern shore of Crete, they proclaimed God's message in the Jewish synagogues. Acts 14.2, the same thing happened in Iconium. They entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Acts 17.1-2, and they, then they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures. So you see, Paul every Saturday goes to the synagogue in Thessalonica. By the way, these places he passed through, I just looked up on the map. They're still there. That's what's nice about all these places in Acts. If they're anywhere near Greece, they're still there. And the Greek is not that far from the English, and you can get a Google map and find, and find out where it is and won't follow the highways. It's kind of cool. And Piphilus, if you look at uh, Macedonia, and just to the east of Macedonia, there's this body of land that has three fingers, three long peninsulas projecting out from it, and that was known as Chalkidiki, and Amphipolis was on the bay at the northern end of those three fingers. Apollonia was right in the middle, back on the mainland, behind those three fingers, and then Thessalonica was on the south, southern end of, in, on the bay at the southern end of those three fingers. And of course, Thessalonica is still a major city in Greece today, where Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. But at any rate, that's a side tra a rabbit trail. Getting back to the idea that Paul was teaching in the synagogues, Acts 18.4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Acts 18.19, when they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and, entered and engaged in discussion with the Jews. And Acts 19.8, then he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly. This is the synagogue at Ephesus again. And spoke boldly over a period of three months engaged in discussion. So Paul went to the synagogue, even though later he became known as the apostle to the Gentiles because the people in the synagogue eventually rejected him. And he said, okay, I'm finished. I'm going to the Gentiles. Now notice as Paul is going through proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, as he did in Acts, he's doing it in Damascus now at the very beginning of his ministry before Acts, uh, before the uh, three missionary journeys. But we can see in these passages where he's speaking in the synagogues on his three missionary journeys, in the six passages I just read you, notice that he uses reasoning and discussion, Acts 17.2. And the reason I point this out is Paul used miracles. He did miracles all the time. And miracles are a great evangelistic tool. I've emphasized that as I've gone through these videos over and over again. Miracles are cool, but reasoning and discussion is cool too. So that's the first thing we need to know. We don't need to denigrate reasoning by exalting miracles. And point number two, we don't want to exalt our pious mystical relationship with Jesus over reasoning. We don't want to denigrate the mind. You know, it so often happens in Christianity, as I'm sure you know. Nothing wrong with reasoning. And let's see how Paul reasoned. He reasoned, of course, from the scriptures, not abstractly, but from the scriptures. Acts 17, 1 through 2. This is in Thessalonica. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he reasoned to the Thessalonican Jews. And then in Acts 18.4, this is in, I think this is in Corinth. I can't remember exactly. I'm pretty sure it's in Corinth. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. He reasoned with them. And then in Acts 18.19, he engaged in discussion with the Jews in the synagogue, which doesn't say reason, but he engaged in discussion with them. So he's, he basically is debating with them. And in Acts 19.8, this is at Ephesus, he entered the synagogue engaging in discussion. Well, if you engage in discussion with somebody, that means you're debating them and that means you're reasoning with them. Nothing wrong with that. It's amazing how many super spiritual Christians get all upset about that. They need to read their Bibles. Acts 9.21, 21. 
But all who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on this name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priest? And the answer to that is, yes, this is the same guy, all right. All who heard him, that might include unbelievers as well as believers, doesn't really say. It could be, I'm sure it included the believers because they're the ones most directly interested, but it probably also included unbelievers too. This man was destroying those. Now that Greek word is translated by the NIV as the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem. I think the, the Holman Christian Study Bible has ravaged. I can't remember. It might be the, the uh, ESV. But at any rate, there's lots of interesting ways to translate that verb. Destroy, ravaged, wreak havoc. The Greek word is is uh, ho porthesos, the one who was persecuting, the one who persecuted. Now that word from the infinitive porthane has three meanings. And Paul did all three of these things, as Adam Clark points out. Porthane can mean to spoil of goods. It can, And Paul did that. He he made the Jewish authorities enter in Christians' homes and steal their goods from them. Even though there's no particular scripture to show this, we can assume that Paul did that. I guess that's an assumption. Paul, the word porthane can mean to imprison. So Paul imprisoned those who called on the name. Acts 8.3, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So he imprisoned them, Acts 9.14, and he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. That's referring to Paul, Acts 26.10, I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison. So when it says Paul destroyed the church, he imprisoned the church. That word can mean imprisoned as well as to spoil of goods. And the third, uh, the third usage of that word, poor thing, destroying those who call on the name, it can mean to murder, to slay. Paul participated in judicial murder of Christians, although he didn't actually murder them himself. We see this from these various scriptures. Acts 7, 5, 8, they threw him, that's the Sanhedrin, threw Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul was there approving and managing the garments of the murderers. Acts 8.1, Saul agreed with putting him, Stephen, to death. Acts 9.1, meanwhile, Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciple of the Lord. He's threatening murder. doesn't say he actually did it. In Acts 9, verse 1, but in Acts 26.10 through 11, I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priest. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So he was on some kind of tribunal, or he might have been a witness or whatever, and he says, no, kill them, execute them. So yeah, Paul was destroying the church, all right, stealing their goods, putting them in prison, and killing them. And so that's why, that's why the people, the Christians in Damascus were just a little wonder, wondering about this man. Wait a minute now, you telling me this man's a Christian now preaching the gospel? I don't think they believed it. I'd have had trouble believing it, that's for sure. We go to verse 22, Acts 9. But Saul grew more capable and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah, this one being Jesus, capital O in my Holman Christian Study Bible, this one is the Messiah. Saul grew more capable. That shows that you can get better at witnessing. You can start out as a baby Christian. You just get better and better at it. How? By practicing. Nothing wrong with that. And the fact that your witnessing skills aren't perfect should not keep you from witnessing. You should go out and witness. I'm a, I was a I still am, actually, very poor at witnessing. It's not my forte. I, there's a guy in my church I'm going to now. He's really good at it. He was dealing with a Buddhist woman who claimed she was a reincarnation of a Nazi prison guard. And I thought, gosh, how do you witness to somebody like that? And I listened to his stories about how he goes back and forth with this woman. And I said, wow, this man is skilled in witnessing. He's skilled. And I'm not like that. But that, is, that shouldn't stop me from trying to do the best I can. That's what I did in China. I just did the best I can. It's a little bit different in China than it is here. Every situation is a little bit different. But how do you get good at it? You practice. You do it. And so Paul practiced. He was always ready to preach the gospel. He grew more capable. Kept confounding the Jews. Now, he had an advantage because he had a good Old Testament education. He knew the Hebrew scriptures backwards and forwards. And so he would debate these Jews in Damascus and beat them. He would go to the prophecies, prove that, hey, this prophecy here in Isaiah is talking to Jesus. Why does it refer to Jesus? Well, here's why. Here's the facts of Jesus' life. And how did the Jews react? We go to verse 23. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. Now, that's real open-minded, is it not? You can't beat somebody in an argument, so you try to murder him. Sounds like a lot of leftist social justice warriors 
on the campus and unfortunately in the Southern Baptist Convention and in the church who go around saying, uh, you know, you don't listen to me. That means you're not woke and somehow you need to get woke and all this nonsense. They had not threatened to kill us yet, but I wonder how long it will be before it gets to that point. But at any rate, these Jews decided they couldn't argue with him, so they're going to try to kill him. What we do today, instead of killing people we disagree we, with, we demonize them and marginalize them and call them racist and homophobes and God knows what other kind of Islamophobes. Call them a bunch of bad names, and that way we don't have to argue with them anymore. That's the tendency of all human flesh. You can't answer an argument. You try to shut, shut the other person up. It's rare that you find people that will debate with you on the facts. Now, there are some that will. Some good atheists will do that. They'll debate based on reason and not emotion. You can find some. I was at a liberal college, and I was amazed at how nice those liberals treated me because they would debate on the basis of fact and not calling you a bunch of names. There are some good liberals out there that will do that. I met a, a, socialist, a self-proclaimed socialist Ph.D. political science from Rutgers and from Ireland, and he says, I am an absolute, I am an ultra-leftist, I am a, a socialist, and then he proceeded to agree with me on something on politics and treated me kindly, nicely, and even after he said, and then, of course, most of what he said was nonsense, but he did it in such a way that you could talk with him based on the facts, not about trying to shut somebody up and calling them names. So... That's what these Jews were doing. That just shows the kind of people they are. Now, many days had passed. Now, this refers probably to the three years that Paul was in Damascus before he went down to Jerusalem. Now, three years is the Jewish three years. I mean, it could be two years and two days. You take the last day of year one, the Jews counted that as a full year. Then year two is the full year. And then the first day of year three... That's the end of the period. Well, that counts as a full year, too, so it's really two years and two days. So somewhere between two and three years, Paul is up there in Damascus. Now, in just a little while, I'm going to try to go through some chronology about what he did during those three years. But right now, we'll just say that um, at the end of the three-year period is when the Jews tried to get him. We're going to assume that. That's an assumption. Some people could say, well, it's not three years. could have happened at the very beginning of his three-year stay. And then he got kicked out of Damascus. He went down to Arabia for three years and then came back to Damascus and went to Jerusalem. That's possible. But I'm going to assume it was, as the NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, it was the three years that he was in the Arabian desert. Now, why did Paul go to Arabia for those three years? Jameson Fawcett and Brown say it was to get repose and rest after the shocking events of his conversion. Or it was to escape persecution of the Jews. Or in addition, it was to escape persecution of the Jews in Damascus. Or maybe he wanted to preach to surrounding Jewish synagogues that were in the desert there. I don't know how many synagogues he's going to find there. I'm going to say later, how about just preaching to the Arabs, the Nabataean Arabs that lived in the Arabian desert? That is probably what happened. This is according to Derek Thomas of First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi, and I think he's probably right. We go to verses 24 and 25 of Acts 9. But their plot became known to Saul. The Jews' plot in Damascus became known to Saul. Paul is still called Saul at this point. So they, the Damascus Jews, were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. Now, here's what I'm going to talk about some chronology. We got several events we got to piece together when we got several scriptures. We got this passage here in Acts 9. We got 2 Corinthians 11:32 and 33, which I'm going to read to you right now. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas guarded the city of the Damascenes in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand. So with that offhand comment that Paul made to the Corinthians, we see it was not just the Jews in Damascus that were after him, but also the governor, that's the ethnarch, under King Aretas. Well, who is King Aretas? Or Aretas, I'm not sure how you say his name. I call him Aretas. He was the king whose daughter was married to Herod Agrippa. Excuse me, not Herod Agrippa. Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was married to Aretas' daughter. Herod Antipas divorces Aretas' daughter and marries his brother's divorced wife, Herodias, which caused that famous sermon by John the Baptist against him and got John the Baptist killed when Herodias' daughter, Salome, did the sexy dance. You, you know the story. Well, this same king is not happy with, I'm sure was not happy with Herod, and he's the guy that is in his Aretas the fourth doesn't say in the scripture, we know that from secular history, he was in charge of the Nabataeans, that's the kingdom there in the Arabian desert. 
It's the same Nabataean kingdom in the 7th century A.D. that had Petra down there in the southern end of the Nabataean Desert as you go to southern Jordan and where Petra is, which is a United Nations cultural preserve in which everybody ought to go see if you ever get a chance there. It's kind of hard to get to, but it is well worth the trip to go see it. That was a Nabataean, those are Nabataean remains down there, those, those remarkable remains. So this governor, for some reason, was angry at Paul. Why do you think that was? Well, this is a speculation I got from Derek Thomas. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's because Paul went down into the Nabataean desert, into the Arabian desert, amongst the Nabataean Arabs, and started preaching the gospel, and got them all upset. Because Paul was not a shy violet when it came to evangelizing. So Aratus got his deputy in Damanix, the ethnarch there, and says, get this guy and arrest him. So now Paul has got two enemies. Now this is assuming that the order is like this. This is according to Derek Thomas, and I think he's correct, is that Paul was baptized by Ananias. He immediately goes into Arabia. Well, and not I say immediately, after a few days or so. He goes into Arabia. He was encouraged by the disciples for a while, and after, it doesn't say how long, and after that he goes into Arabia. Three years later, he returns to Damascus. Aretas the king, the Nabataean Arabian king, is mad at him, as well as the Jews, so they kick him out. They, they try to arrest him and kill him, and so the disciples lower Paul in a basket outside the walls, and he escapes and goes to Jerusalem. I think that's the most reasonable chronology of the events here. John Stott, on the other hand, says that he believes that Paul was baptized, and then because of persecution from the Jews, he was let down in the basket outside the walls, and then he goes to Arabia for three years, then he goes back to Damascus, and then he goes down to Jerusalem. Well, I guess I should read the other verse that we have to work in here, Galatians 1, 18 through 19, that after three years I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, that's Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And I guess I ought to go back and read verse 17 also, which says this, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. There's where the other little detail is. After he went to Arabia, he came back to Damascus. So the question is, was he let down in the basket over the wall before he went to Arabia or after he came back from Arabia and went back to Damascus? In my humble opinion, it was after he went to Arabia. That explains why Aretas the king and Second Corinthians 11 is trying to guard the city to keep Paul from getting out because he's mad at him. He's trying to get Paul arrested. Why is he mad? Because Paul was doing evangelism in the desert. A lot of that is speculation, but it's very reasonable speculation, I think. Of course, the chronology cannot be nailed down exactly. If you want mathematical proof, you can't get it from the evidence that we have. Now, a few more details on these verses 24 and 25. Verse 25 says, His disciples took him by night. The translation split about 50-50. I went looking through a bunch of English translations. A lot of translations says the disciples. The problem with translating it as his disciples, it's not usual for saints and scriptures to be called disciples of any man. But it could be. It could be the people that, that Paul had taught in Damascus, and they were close to him, and they saved his life, lowered him in a large basket out of the wall. Houses were built in the walls back then. That was a common thing. And so he was probably in a house that just went out the back door, dropped the basket on a rope out the back window, and down they went. That would be hard for somebody to catch because they got all those houses. You'd have to know what houses, what house he was in and was about to escape from. We go to verse 26 of Acts 9. Of Acts 9. When he, Paul, arrived in Jerusalem, this is after he had left Arabia and left Damascus, he arrives in Jerusalem. He tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. And can you blame them? The last time they had seen Paul, he was throwing Christians in jail right and left. So when he got in Jerusalem, he tried to associate not only with the apostles, but with the disciples. You notice it doesn't say the apostles, it's with the disciples. The only apostles that were there apparently, according to the NIV study Bible, is Peter and James. And that's because of Galatians 1, 18 and 19 that says this. After three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So the NIV Study Bible speculates there was no apostle there, but Peter and James, all the rest of them, had, had left. And I wouldn't doubt that. He was chiefly going to see Peter, because he says that in Galatians 1.18. I went to get to know Cephas, but he also tried to associate with the disciples in general in Acts 9.26. There's just something instinctive in Christians trying to associate with other Christians. As much as we are human beings and don't like each other sometimes, it's just great to get around other Christians. It's hard not to. Acts 9.27, 
Barnabas, however, now Barnabas is in Jerusalem at the time. He's from Cyprus. Barnabas, however, took him, took Paul, and brought him to the apostles. Now, I don't know how Barnabas knew Paul, but he obviously did, because he took him to the Paul to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him. The Lord had talked to Paul, talked to Saul, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas is given a character reference for Paul and saying, look, this guy is not a persecutor anymore. He's a preacher of the gospel. Now, who is this Barnabas? Well, later he was an important companion of Paul on the first missionary journey, which started in Acts 13, verse 1. In the church that was at Antioch, that's Antioch of Syria, which is right north of Jerusalem, right off the Mediterranean coast in that little piece of Syria that juts down there, north of present-day Lebanon, and then, of course, it bends to the west around the corner of the, around the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and you go a little ways that way, and you end up in Tarsus. So Antioch and Tarsus are fairly close together. And anyway, the church at Antioch was a big one. It was a, a center of missionary activity there in the early church. We're still, by the way, in the 30s or so, 80, 30s somewhere or so. And in the church that was in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and the first one that's mentioned is Barnabas. Now, in Acts 11:22, we read this. Then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. So you see, Barnabas, even though he spent most of his time in Antioch, he also was in Jerusalem a lot. He traveled between Jerusalem and Antioch. Why did he travel this time to Antioch? Because he was going to check out a report that there were Kyrenians from North Africa and Cypriots from the island of Cyprus who were preaching to Hellenistic Jews there. And that's big news because now instead of the Jewish Christians preaching to the pagan Gentiles, now we've got Christian pagan, excuse me, Christian Gentiles preaching back to the unbelieving Jews, which is a sort of a man-bites-dog story. Well, we've got to check this out. So they sent Barnabas up there. So obviously Barnabas was well-respected in the church, and that was good because Paul needed a good character reference. Acts 11.25, then he, Barnabas, went to Tarsus to search for Saul. This is after he went to Antioch to check out the Kyrenians and the Cypriots, and then he went on to Tarsus. I guess he went on from Antioch, not having returned to Jerusalem, but went on to Antioch to look for Saul. Uh, they, we hadn't seen this yet, but they had to get Saul out of town, out of Jerusalem, because of persecution of the Jews, and they sent him off to his home city of Tarsus. And so Barnabas later on went to Tarsus, looked for him, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and that's when they started on their first journey together in Acts 13. Now, Acts 15, verse 37-39, this is after the first journey. Unfortunately, they had a little bit of discord on the first journey. John Mark bailed out on, on Paul and Barnabas when they were in Pamphylia, southern Asia Minor, and they were getting ready to start the second journey, and Barnabas wanted to go on the second journey and take along John Mark. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. But in verse 38 in Acts 15, Paul did not think it appropriate to take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them in the work. Paul said, this guy hadn't got what it takes. He bails out. He's too soft. It's a personnel decision. And Barnabas didn't like it. And you could say, well, that's because he was his cousin, but we're not going to blame. You can't blame Barnabas for that. He stuck up for his cousin, but maybe his cousin needed to be stuck up for. I'm not going to take sides on this dispute between Paul and Barnabas. But at any rate, it worked out for the good because while Paul was on the second journey, Barnabas went down to Cyprus, his home stomping grounds, and they had, and he and John Mark had some more evangelism going down there. Verse 39, there was such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. I don't know how Barnabas got to know Paul. He got to know him somehow, probably in Jerusalem there, when uh, somehow maybe he had uh, heard tale of him from Christians in Damascus. I don't know, when, the, when Barnabas was there in Jerusalem at the beginning. And later on, by the way, and I don't have the site with me, but I've read this. There's one of the letters in the New Testament where Paul mentions Barnabas as being with him, or Barnabas, Paul, blah, 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 Barnabas sends greetings. So obviously they got back together again. How nice that is. Same with John Mark. So they all got it worked out and lived happily ever after, at least until they got executed. And then they lived with Jesus happily ever after. Now, let's take up an issue here. Barnabas brought Paul to the apostles and explained to them how about Saul's conversion experience, the vision on the road to Damascus. Now, Adam Clark asked an interesting question here. Now, Paul's already been saved three years. How is it that the Jerusalem church had not heard of Paul's conversion? That is an interesting question. Three years, famous guy, and you still don't know how he got converted, and you're still doubting who he is? Well, they did. They didn't know who. They didn't believe that he had been converted, even though it had been three years earlier. Now, Adam Clark's got some great explanations of this. He says it's not easy to account for this fact, but here's how he accounts for it, and I think he does a good job. 
First of all, there were few roads and regular posts between Damascus and Jerusalem. Well, maybe, but after three years, word's going to get up and down. So that's—I don't think that's really—I don't think that's a good explanation. But Clark also says the Jerusalem Jews would have little commerce between the pagan city of Damascus, and I wouldn't doubt that. I mean, you know, Jerusalem is Jerusalem. Damascus is in Gentile pagan territory, and. There was a war between Aretas, who was ruling Damascus at the time in that Nabataean kingdom. The, the Arabian king there, Aretas, is ruling Damascus. And he ain't happy with Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas has ditched his daughter. His lovely daughter dumped him for another woman. So Herod, Antipas, and Aretas were fighting a war. Or at least, yes, they were fighting a war. And this war must have prevented all social and commercial intercourse. Remember, Herod Adipus ruled up in the north, up in the Galilean region, and that region was between Jerusalem and Damascus. So, yeah, that's, there's a good chance that they there was not a lot of communication between Jerusalem and Damascus at the time. Also, the Christians in both Jerusalem and Damascus were under heavy persecution, and there's likely not to be much intercourse between them. If you go up to, say, I want to send a letter to my Jewish Christian friend in Damascus, well, who, what if somebody intercepts that letter and you get arrested? I know how that is. I've got people in China right now that I'm not talking to because of a certain government there run by Mao, excuse me, run by Xi Jinping, Mao Zedong Ping, who is now doing everything he can to persecute the church, to rid the Christian church, get it out of China. Lots of luck with that one. He ain't going to do it. But he's going to cause a lot of grief in the meanwhile. And so now, yeah, there's somebody I can't talk to, somebody who uh, really helped us out a lot over there. Here's another reason Clark says that the Jerusalem Jews did not know about Paul's conversion. The Jerusalem Jews had a vested interest in keeping Paul's conversion quiet because Paul's conversion was extremely embarrassing to them. So the Jews are not going to let anybody know that Paul was converting because it was an embarrassing thing. It's only going to come through the Christians that the knowledge of this conversion. And as I said, there was not a lot of commerce between the Christians most probably. And those that had heard of the conversion, those Jerusalem Jew, Jewish Christians who had heard of, the, of Paul's conversions, might not really believe Paul was Paul. They never had seen him personally. They weren't personally acquainted with him. So they say, yeah, we heard this persecutor up there got saved. Well, and, and the Jews in Jerusalem might say, yeah, but how do we know that's the same Paul? The same guy that was persecuting us in Jerusalem, maybe that's somebody else up in Damascus that got converted on the road to Damascus. And... Th- those are all Clark's ideas. This is my idea. Paul is preaching three years in Arabia. That's a long way from Jerusalem. Arabia, that's a Nab- the Nabataean kingdom. Those are Arabs. Arabs don't have a lot to do with Jews a lot of times. And so the Jews and the Christian Jews in Jerusalem probably just hadn't heard of what Paul was doing. And now Barnabas has to explain to him, yes, he's doing it all right. He's preaching the gospel. Acts 9 verse 28. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. This is for the 15 days that he was there. 15 days comes from Galatian. Galatians 1.18. After three years, I did go up to Jerusalem, get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. So he's coming and going for 15 days, and he was freely coming and going because no Christian tried to stop Paul after Barnabas recommended Paul to the Jerusalem church there, or mainly to Peter and James. And Peter and James probably put out the good word, hey, this guy's a good guy, he's on our side now. And so Paul is speaking boldly, as he always did, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. We go to verse 29 of Acts 9. He, Paul, conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to kill him. Debated. Ooh, I thought Christians weren't supposed to debate. Some evangelism requires that, especially when you're talking with smart people, intellectual type people like these Hellenistic Jews, I'm sure were. Paul, of course, is trained for that. He's a rabbinic scholar. He knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards, so he would debate. And again, I, I, all my life I've heard these super pious, pietistic, hyper pietistic Christians saying, no, 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 we should never debate. Well, if we shouldn't, is Paul sinning because he's debating the gospel with somebody? Now, you're not supposed to cast your pearls before swine. You're supposed to give them a chance. And if they want to continue to be uh, stubborn and mule-headed about it, well, then you quit preaching to them. But you got to give them a chance. At least get, present the gospel once. If they're not going to listen, okay. But... You might have to debate with them a little bit. And I assume the Hellenistic Jews were willing to debate Paul at first before they decide to kill him, of course. But before they get to that point, they're willing to debate. And Paul went ahead. And in verse 29, he conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to kill him. So there you go. That's real open-minded, right? You can't answer your arguments of your opponents, so you demonize them, marginalize them, and try to kill him. Now, Paul, although he was skilled in debate, at other times used miracles for conversion. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but it's all through Acts. 
He didn't see any in, inherent contradiction in that. But in the modern world, this is my opinion, it seems that there is a dichotomy. We see educated Christians don't do miracles. This isn't true in China. I was in universities in China for so many years, and I didn't hear a lot of urban Christians around the universities, and there's a lot of them. Got a lot of them converted by foreigners, actually. They didn't do miracles, but by golly, you get out into the boondocks, out into Xinjiang province and places like that, which I went. I went all through the underground church, and there was talk of miracles everywhere. And the gospel was spreading like wildfire, and people are getting saved much faster than the population growth in China. So miracles are a big deal in evangelism. But it's interesting that educated Christians tend to not do them, and uneducated Christians tend to do them. I wonder why that is. It's because educated Christians, they got to think too much. they got to be rationalist. Paul wasn't like that. He, he used his mind. He reasoned. He debated, as I'm trying to say here. It says right here in verse 29, he conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. So he did debate, but he also did miracles. There's no dichotomy. We need to do both. Now, notice the Jerusalem Jews attempted to kill him. I don't know if you remember, we just read that the Damascus Jews tried to kill him too. Same thing. Priests in the synagogues, they get mad at him. They can't answer him. He, he confutes, disputes, and confounds them, and then they try to kill him. He goes to Jerusalem. He goes into the synagogues. He confutes and confounds, confounds the Hellenistic Jews there. He debates with them, and they attempt to kill him again. He started out his life as a marked man. Acts, verse 30, Acts chapter 9, verse 30. When the brothers found out, that's the Christian brothers, found out, again, found out that the Jews were trying to kill Paul, they took him. They took Paul down to Caesarea. That's the port city on the Mediterranean coast. Oh, what is it, about 70, 80, 90 miles from Jerusalem? I forgot. They took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is just a hop, skip, and a jump across the corner, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Do you hit Cilicia on the southern coast of Asia Minor? And that's where Tarsus was. And Tarsus, by the way, was a big, fancy city. It was a well-known city. You read ancient history or Greek history, classical history, classical ancient history, Tarsus is mentioned all the time. And nobody even thinks about it as Paul's birthplace. We think of it as Paul's birthplace, but the ancients just thought of it as a big port city. Why did he go there? Well, it's a good place to send him because he was likely to have friends and acquaintances there. It's his hometown. They're less likely to want to harm Paul, even if they were non-believers. They would be hometown boys, and they're less likely to want to kill him, especially if they're his relatives. Now, interesting fact here, Galatians 1.21 says that Paul not only left Jerusalem to go to Tarsus, he went through Syria also. Galatians 1.21 says this, Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Well, Paul apparently went by land. He goes straight north of Jerusalem, go through present-day uh, Lebanon. And to be honest with you, I can't remember who's ruling that area now. But you keep going, probably the Romans, you keep going north through Lebanon, you end up in Syria. Right as you get to the corner of the northwestern sea, the northeast corner, that little piece of land up there is the coastal area of Syria, and then Syria goes far to the east into the desert, into the Nabata into the Arabian desert. But right there on the coast is Syria, and you go up the coast, and you take a, a, a left, you go around the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, you take a left and go west, and you're in Cilicia, the province of Cilicia, the Roman province, and Tarsus was the big city there. So Paul, and I'm sure, I'm sure he's evangelizing the whole way. Now, he goes to Tarsus. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that after this first visit to Tarsus, it is not certain that he was ever there again. So this is our last notice of Paul at Tarsus. He didn't really do much work there. At least it's not recorded. And I'm speculating it's because a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown also speculate that maybe this, at this time, Paul led certain of his kinsmen to the Lord. Maybe a sister and maybe his nephew, the, the son of that sister. Here's the scripture, Acts 23:16. This is referring to the Jerusalem mob trying to ambush Paul after he returned from his third journey. Acts 23.16 says this, But the son of Paul's sister, that would be Paul's nephew, the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul was under Roman arrest there. And his nephew saved his neck, and you could speculate. That's probably because his nephew was a Christian. Now, it could be the nephew was just doing it because Paul was his uncle in a blood relation, not spiritual relation. And it could be that the nephew's mother, Paul's sister, was not saved. We don't know. It's speculation. But Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown so speculation. It's not an unreasonable one. But anyway, he was in Tarsus for a while before he ended up going to Antioch. When Barnabas found him there and brought him over to Antioch. And then Paul starts his missionary journeys, about which we soon, when we get further into the book of Acts, will hear a lot about. Now, here it says in this verse that the brothers sent him off to Tarsus, the Jerusalem Christians sent him to Tarsus, 
And that is true. They helped him on his way. But Jameson Fawcett Brown points out that Paul went of his own motion. It wasn't like they sent him against his will. We read in Acts 22 when Paul is defending himself before the Jerusalem mob, verses 17 through 21. After I came back to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple complex, I went into a visionary state. This is Paul after he came from Damascus. He was in Jerusalem and had a vision. He saw him, Jesus, telling him, telling me, Paul, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue I had those who believed in you in prison and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by and approving, and I guarded the clothes of those who killed him. I'm not sure. Maybe Paul here is, is concerned that the Christians won't accept him. Or maybe he's saying, look, I don't need to get out of Jerusalem because the Jews here know I was beaten up on Christians, so why would they want to throw me out? I'm not sure exactly what Paul meant there. When we get to Acts 22, I'll discuss that issue a little in more detail. Verse 21, Then he, the Lord, Jesus, said to me, Paul, go because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Jesus, Paul is obeying a vision of Jesus when he left Jerusalem to go to Tarsus through Syria at the behest of the brothers in Jerusalem. And this just shows another interesting thing about Acts. Whenever Paul had to make a big move, there were visions. It happened all the time. I obeyed the heavenly vision, Paul said, as he was getting shipwrecked right on the way to Rome at the end of his third journey after he left Jerusalem there. He has a vision here. What was the, He had a vision, about, it was a dream maybe, about coming over to, crossing over into Europe from Asia at Troas. So, Paul lived a supernatural life and Jesus was with him the whole way. And this was especially necessary at the beginning of the gospel because the church was so small and so oppressed by the Romans and the Jews. We go to verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And it increased in numbers. Ah, increased in numbers. That's a theme that Luke likes to use in Acts. The church is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, there's nothing wrong with increases in, in numbers of Christians. What's wrong, the way we misuse it today is, oh, my church is getting bigger and bigger, and of course I'm stealing all the members from your church, and your church is getting smaller and smaller. No, this is the church of Jesus Christ getting bigger and bigger because of conversions, people believing in Jesus. Now, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, that's basically Israel. Judea is the southern parts, Galilee is the northern part, and Samaria is the region right in between the northern and southern part. So Luke mentions all three areas. The church had peace. Now, the interesting thing is, is how did it have peace? Could it be because Paul was converted? Gil denies that, and I think he's right, because Paul had been converted three years earlier. That didn't create peace. Adam Clark says this is not likely, he agrees, this is not likely that Paul's conversion brought peace to the church as because, because Paul could not be a universal cause of persecution and distress. In other words, there's a lot of other people besides Paul that were doing the persecution, so if Paul gets converted, there's still a lot of other persecutors around to do their dirty work. And not only that, Paul's own persecution shows that the persecution didn't die out, remember? They persecuted him in Damascus, tried to kill him. They persecuted him in Jerusalem and tried to kill him. So obviously Paul's conversion didn't stop the persecution. All right, so that didn't bring peace. Well, here's another option as to what did bring peace. Paul's removal from Jerusalem to Tarsus. Now, John Gill affirms that. He believes that. He said that in Jerusalem, Paul had freshly stirred up a persecutory spirit, and that spirit relented when Paul left town. That's reasonable. Adam Clark said the reason there was peace is because the Jews became preoccupied with the Emperor Caligula's famous attempt to place his statue in the temple in Jerusalem. That occurred in 39 AD, which is right around this area. Adam Clark says 39 AD is right around this time. And so the Jews didn't have time to persecute the Christians. They were too busy worrying about the Romans and Caligula and that crazy, crazy emperor. But at any rate, God supernaturally gave him relief from that persecution that started with the martyrdom of Stephen. How did the church end up in Galilee and Samaria, by the way? You know, we don't know it well. We know Acts 8, the gospel, had uh, spread up there through the preaching of Philip. And he was probably up there because of the persecution in Jerusalem. It was because of the persecution in Jerusalem that evangelists went up north to Galilee and Samaria. And they were all getting saved. And notice when Luke says the church increased, that was despite the persecution. Persecution did not succeed in stopping the growth of the church. The Chinese are still persecuting the church in China, and the more they persecute, the faster the church grows and the bigger it gets. One old underground, old 70, 80-year-old man who had great contacts with the underground church over there, he stopped by my apartment one day, and he says, the government can't stop it. There are too many potatoes growing in the garden. 
Too many Christians and the government can't pick them fast enough. I would even say the persecution probably increased the growth of the church because people, when they're persecuted, they tend to sell out everything for Jesus and then when they start doing that, God starts supernaturally working. And I'm telling you, persecution is coming to the church in America. I mean, it's you don't have to be a fortune teller reading tea leaves to know that. I mean, we got... The church, we got the liberal churches, we've got the media, we've got the educational establishment, we've got one whole political party, I won't mention his name because I don't like to use profanity when I'm talking in a Bible study, we've got one whole political party that's openly open to atheists, free thinkers, and anti-Christians, and we got all this going, and the church is lying on the ground with its soft underbelly exposed, a feet, doesn't do miracles, got a lot of seminaries, but basically is riven with programs, bureaucracies, deadness, and it's not doing a job. But when the persecution starts, people are going to start getting serious, and we're going to get rid of all this entertainment and prosperity gospel crapola, and we're going to start getting serious about the gospel, and that's when it's going to spread. So that's my prediction. I'm not a prophet, and I sure don't want persecution. I've seen it in China. I'm telling you, I don't like it. Nobody's flesh likes it, but I sure like the results. And by the way, persecution does not always bring results. I had a interesting post-mill guy that came to a conference, a house church conference I did one time, and he had his little article, and he gave it to me. He said, look at that. And I read it, and he gave example after example of how persecution wiped out the church, didn't make it increase. For example, the Persians, when the, ch when the church in the 300-400 A.D. or so, I think it was 400 A.D., 5th century, started spreading over in Persia, the Persians got mad about it and just wiped it off the face of the earth. It's the same thing in, in um, Tang Dynasty China when the church ended up coming through the west through Xinjiang. Uh, and, and became accepted, and in Xi'an, there was Christian stuff in tombs, and, and there was Christian, you know, it was Nestorian Christianity, which ain't that bad. I know people say they're heresy, but I don't believe they're that much of a heretic. I'm not even sure Nestorius was a heretic, but anyway, Nestorian Christians get started there, and then the pagan Chinese got angry and stomped out the church, and you don't hear about them for another five, six hundred years in China. So persecution doesn't always... The blood of the martyrs is not always the seat of the church, as Tertullian said. He was overgeneralizing, actually. But at any rate, the church grew. Now, let's talk about this term church, the church. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. So there the term church is the Greek word ekklesia. It is used for a regional, for the regional church, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. The word ecclesia can also refer to the universal church. Here's an example. There are others. Matthew 16:18, and I tell you, you are Peter, on the, on, and on this rock I will build my church. He wasn't talking about a local church. He's talking about Peter's confession of faith was the foundation of the universal church. The word church can be used of the church in a city. Acts 8:1. Saul agreed with putting him to death. As Stephen on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem. The church in a city. Acts 11:22. Then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, church in a city, Acts 13.1. In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. So you see churches used for universal church, regional church, city church, and we're getting smaller and smaller and smaller now. It can refer to the church in a home, a local church. Here's an example of scripture. There's about eight of them. I'm going to quote you one, Philemon 1, second part of the verse, to verse 2. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. The church in your house. Now, the church word there is ecclesia. That is the word that's used for political and other assemblies, as the NIV Study Bible says. Here's some examples of where the term ecclesia is used for a secular assembly, not a Christian church. Acts 19.32, meanwhile, some were shouting one thing and some another. This is at the riot at Ephesus, outside the... Um, amphitheater there or in the amphitheater Paul was outside because the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know what they had come together for that was the local assembly political assembly Acts 1940 again at Ephesus in fact we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today since there's no justification that we can give as a reason for this disorderly gathering or this disorderly assembly so the term is not a religious term it's a secular term I've been reading a lot of Greek history lately and in classical Greece, during the democratic period, after Cleisthenes started democracy there and, and it reached its high point under Pericles, democracy, 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 they constantly talk about the ecclesia. What happened in this ecclesia? The people got together, together in the pinnacks, in the, in, the, in the field there, 
where everybody debated and what had happened. There was lots of persuasion, lots of oratory, voting, discussion, weighing alternatives. And I submit to you that's exactly how a New Testament church should operate, with lots of persuasion. When I say oratory, I don't mean sermons. I mean people speaking out their mind, voting, discussion, and weighing alternatives instead of having a pronouncement from the pastor or the bishop from on high. One last thing to say about this verse 31. Luke says that the church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was being built up. Now that word built up is interesting. The Greek is oikodomumenai. Oikodomumenai. I'm having trouble saying it. Oikodomumenai. Oikodomumenai being built up. It's a metaphor. Orkos, of course, means house. It's a metaphor taken from a building, and it's appropriate since the church is God's temple, a building. Now, this is building up a house is a very prominent New Testament metaphor, as Adam Clark points out, and so I'm going to read you some scriptures that use that metaphor. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Coming to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God, you yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house. So being built up means being built up as a house for a holy priesthood in order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The scriptures know nothing of Lone Ranger Christians. Christians are supposed to gather together and build themselves up in a spiritual house, a temple, if you will, a place where Jesus lives, where the Holy Spirit lives, and where you live. Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of, of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building, being put together by him, grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Built together, built up, built up into a building, built on a foundation. This is everywhere in the New Testament. So it's a, it's a metaphor that we should pay close attention to because the church is so much more important than individualistic Christians give it in America today. And, I, you know, I don't blame Christians because you go to the average church, you sit back in a pew and you listen to a boring sermon and you, and you don't know anybody and there's nothing but bureaucracy. And you got to cut through a lot of stuff before you get true Christian fellowship. And I know that, but still, the scriptures are very clear. We're supposed to be built up into a house, into a temple. We're supposed to be built up. Now, if you're like me, you read verse 31 in Acts 9 individually or individualistically. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace being built up. Don't, don't you think, well, that means I'm being built up, I'm being strengthened spiritually. It doesn't say that. It says the church. The subject of that is the church is being built up. The church collectively is being built up, not just you individually. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. I hope you enjoyed this audio. I hope you stay tuned for our next one. As we turn from the Apostle Paul in his early evangelistic days, and we turn to the Apostle Peter and see what he's been doing after he meets Paul for that 15 days in Jerusalem. See you next time.